So the book of James, uh, reading from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I want to start uh, this morning with a confession. I am an adulterer. I really am. But there's something else too. You've guessed it. You are an adulterer as well. I'm an adulterer and you are an adulterer. Now that's not uh, my words or my verdict. That's the verdict of James. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the leaders of one of the very early churches. And let me just show you that he says that. Uh, So turn over to uh, James chapter four, uh, verse four. And he says this, he accused them, you adulterous people, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's what he says. And given this letter is scripture, It means that God's verdict is that we are adulterers as well. That's not just James's verdict. That is God's verdict on us as well. That is if we're anything like the people who James was writing to. So who is he writing to? And what's this letter all about? It's worth briefly thinking about that as we start this new series. We'll see in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that is a letter uh, from James to, James to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's probably writing to Christians who were in Jerusalem, but as a result of persecution, 
They've had to leave their homes up sticks and live elsewhere, be scattered all over Israel. And although these Christians have probably moved to different places and are now in different churches, there seems to be some general trends in the way they're treating uh, other Christians. So in chapter 2, verse 6, you might see, he says, you have dishonored the poor. Uh, He knew about their situation. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, these things, that's how they're speaking, these things ought not to be so. But by implication, they were. He knew how they were speaking to each other. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about how we knew how they were quarreling and fighting amongst one another. And throughout the rest of this letter, we'll also read about other issues that were going on in the church, how they were treating the poor, how they were speaking to one another, and even how they were suffering. And none of these things they were doing as they ought to be doing. And although they were scattered all over, there was a commonality in the way they were behaving. And something that's slightly rare about this letter, compared with some of the other New Testament letters, is the people who James is writing to basically believe the right thing. Their doctrine is on the money. They would have been turning up to adult Sunday school. They would have been learning well. But there's an inconsistency in their behavior. Uh, Some people have called this a gospel gap. There was a distinction between what they knew about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he'd done for them with how they lived their lives. In fact, James has got his own word for it. He calls it double-mindedness. We saw that in uh, 1 verse 8 in the reading. He's a double-minded man. Again, it comes up in uh, chapter 4, verse 8. He'll say, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And James is basically saying, look, you know the right thing. You basically know the gospel, but you don't live it out. You don't believe your beliefs. You've got divided loyalties. And that's why he calls them adulterers. That's why uh, I said at the beginning, we're adulterers. Now, we might think, oh, that's sort of adultery. Oh, yeah, yeah, not, not the serious adultery. But actually, it's far more serious. A sense in which there's not many more things uh, more serious than adultery. Maybe think of one or two things, but it is right up there uh, with one of the most serious things you could do. And James says, and that's how you treat God. It is the most serious form of adultery. Now, this idea of double-mindedness, this idea of a gap between what you believe and, and how you live comes throughout the book. And we see that they've sort of got two minds on different issues. They've got two minds on what they hear and and believe on the one hand with how they live on the other Uh, they've got two minds about how they speak to God and how they speak about God with how they speak to each other and how they speak about each other double-mindedness or split loyalties it comes throughout as we'll see in the series and we'll see it in this morning as well they believe in God but they love the ways of the world And, and can't we resonate with that can't resonate. We, we know the truth about God. We're, we're, if you're a Christian, I guess there'll be some people here who aren't Christians this morning. It is so great to have you here. But maybe you have seen inconsistencies in Christians you know. Well, believe you me, Christians, we know it too. And we feel the pain. Have you ever had uh, that frustration uh, as a Christian? You just think, why do I keep doing this? I know it ought not to be. Well, James's answer is you're double-minded. And as James speaks to us, it's sense which he'll turn the screw. He'll show us that we're actually more double-minded than we realise. But the book of James is also a book of grace. As well as rebuking us, he writes for our benefit. He wants us to be single-minded and he's going to show us uh, how we can be. It's a book of grace that points us back to the word of God uh, that can save us. Uh, that can save us. That's what it says in uh, 1 uh, verse uh, 22. Uh, it, it's... 
It's a book that's about, so 1 verse 21, it's a book of grace that points us back to the Lord who is gracious to the humble. He's gracious to, to, to those who know they don't live up to what they believe. And so it's a book that points us back to the Lord. And the very last uh, verse of the book, we see this. He says, um, I'll read the last uh, couple of verses. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is longing. It's not just to give us a kicking, but it's to save us and bring us back to the Lord. With that intro, let's have a think about the passage we've had read this morning. Uh, Lots of different issues were brought up. Um, So verses 2 to 4, it's about suffering. Uh, Verses 5 to 8, it's about um, praying and about faith. Verses 9 to 11, it's a word of how to be faithful if you're poor and how to be faithful if you're rich. And verse 12, it's back to uh, being faithful in trials again. Verse 13 to 15, temptations. And verse 16 to 18, it's about the character of God. And it can feel a bit sort of scattergunned. You know, uh, what are we meant to make of all this? There's lots of, lots of good general advice in here, but there is a sort of, is there a theme uh, going on here? And I think there is. But James often said to be a little bit like the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom, how to live uh, wisely. And if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you, I mean, I think this all the time. Why are we so sort of scattered all over here? We're talking about speech. We're talking about work. We're talking about love. We're talking about uh, marriage. We're talking uh, about, about all sorts of different topics. Um, and there's a sense in which that's true for James. But I think what Proverbs is doing and what James is doing is they're painting a picture of the wise life in, in, in the language of the Old Testament, what the life looks like when you fear the Lord. In the language of James, what life looks like when you're single-minded and not double-minded. But I think the underlying theme here is this, in, in the first 18 verses, is that James wants us to get God's goodness to be a complete Christian. He wants us to get God right, have the right view of God. And once we have the right view of God and we really believe our beliefs, uh, then we will live as complete Christians. And we'll look at the passage this morning in two halves, so uh, 1 to 12 and then 13 to 18. To start then uh, with, uh, well, go really from verse 2 to 12. I think really what James is, here, is saying here is this. Trust God's goodness in trials. Trust his goodness in trials. And we can break that down a little bit. Let's give three commands. Verse 2 to 4, account it joy. Verse 5 to 8, ask for wisdom. Verse 9 to 12, boast rightly. But all these things in the context of trusting God's goodness in trials. Well, the first uh, three verses in the section, verse two to four, um, this, is, uh, what, this is how it starts. And I really want you to feel um, the, the remarkable thing that James says in verse two. It's, it's, it's completely radical. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy from trials. It's, it's almost opposites. And James is saying, No, don't count them as opposites. See that they go together. Joy and trials. Now, if that is true, if it is possible to count uh, trials as joy, that is a remarkable gift of the gospel, isn't it? That even in trials, uh, there is goodness for the believer. So, So what is he saying? Well, first he's saying, count it joy or consider it joy or think it joy. I don't think he's saying, feel it joy. He's not pretending, oh yeah, I I love pain. 
He's not pretending that, oh, it's suddenly really easy to be happy in genuine hardship. I think what he's saying is this. He's saying, think about it. You do the maths, work it out. Now, children, have you ever been on a really sort of scary, uh, oh, sorry, seen a really scary funfair ride, but you sort of want to go on it, but you're sort of not sure? And sometimes you have to tell yourself, don't you? Look, I know this is safe. My parents are saying it's safe. I'm only getting the benefit of it if I actually just realise it's actually safe. Uh, you, you, you have to do the maths. It looks scary, but I know it's safe. Think about it. Well, that's what James is saying here. Consider it joy or count it joy. joy. Why? And the reason is this, because trials test our faith. It's like they take our trust in God down to the gym. They give it a workout to strengthen it. And the testing of our faith produces perseverance. The strengthening of our faith turns us into complete Christians, whole Christians, rather than double-minded Christians, inconsistent Christians. Now, completeness and wholeness in lots of areas of life is really important, isn't it? Some bits of life say, 90%, that'll do. 95%, that'll do. That's not really true for the Christian uh, life. Um, A bit like this, imagine opening up a board game. And not all the, the, not all the pieces are there. Most of them are there, but uh, you don't have the dice. Is it so frustrating? You've got it all out, but it just, it won't work, will it? Because it's not complete. Or perhaps even more frustrating when you spend about five or six hours over Christmas doing a puzzle. And as you're down to the last sort of 10 pieces, you see about 12 or 13 pieces worth of puzzle left and you finish it, but it's got gaps in. So frustrating. It's incomplete. A completeness often matters and it matters uh, in the Christian life not to have uh, missing bits and James is saying sometimes this is what trials can do they can strengthen our faith so we trust Christ wholly so that we're not incomplete being tossed about uh, by the waves in life so there's no gap between what we believe and how we live now brothers and sisters many of us this week uh, maybe the whole of 2023, was a year of great suffering, great pain. And maybe it wasn't just a year, maybe actually your experience of life is one of hardship. And you say that not just because it's general hardship, but you've just seen other people's lives and you really do feel that your life has been substantially harder than the average. Well, know this, James is saying, well, I should say God is saying, God is speaking through this book. God is saying, that if you look to him in your trials, they are never wasted. They are never wasted if you look to him. Doesn't mean they're easy, but they're never wasted. Now, there's not all the Bible has to say about suffering. Many, many of the Psalms, 150 Psalms, and so many of them, most of them you would actually say, are sung in the context of difficulty and challenges. You've got the book of Job, don't you? That has uh, 42 chapters uh, wrestling uh, with suffering. You've got uh, the life and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a hard life. You've got the testimony of, of the Apostle Paul, the, the early church in Acts. The Bible says so much about suffering. And we don't have time to say it here. It's a lifetime to know it and to, to see it through. But here we're just given uh, one wonderful bit of encouragement. That if we look to God in our sufferings, it will never be wasted. The question though is, what does it actually look like? What does it look like looking to God? Well, I, I think 
um, James is going to help us out there. In the next five, in the next four verses, verse five to verse eight, how can I possibly trust God in trials? How can I have joy in my trials? It just seems so counterintuitive. Well, verse five, he points us to look to God. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. It is so hard to trust God's generosity, isn't it, in hardship? Go to God, trust his generosity in face of trials. It sounds easy, but in practice, it's very, very hard. Well, that's why James says, ask God for wisdom to do it. And not in your trials. I think now he's generalizing out, saying, if you want wisdom, uh, look to God and he will give it. He's a generous God. That is his character. He loves to give uh, good things. He's not stingy. And God will help you count your trials, uh, count your trials as joy. But of course, we do need to get God's character right. And that's what he says in verse six to eight. So let me read that again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all, in all his ways. He's saying, ask in faith and don't doubt. And I think it's very easy to get this verse wrong. Um, So James is not saying Christian can never have doubts. He's not saying that. Um, Jesus uh, talks about faith like a mustard seed. In other words, a growing faith, something that starts small and grows. And and the mustard seed faith is commended, a, a faith that starts small and grows. So it's not no doubts. Uh, and, and he's certainly not saying if your prayers haven't been answered, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. I don't think what's saying there. I think what James is saying here is don't doubt God's goodness. Uh, it's about believing that God ultimately is good. And so often we are double minded, aren't we? On the one hand, we sort of confess we we know God is good. We could we, we someone said to you, what is God like? Is he good? God, you say, yes, he's a good God. But in our hearts, we struggle to believe our beliefs. Uh, We doubt his goodness. So in trials, we may well uh, say with our lips, Lord, increase my faith in these trials. Help me to trust you more. But really in our hearts, we think this. I just don't care about my faith. I just want comfort. God, I don't care. We're double-minded. And maybe another example. Maybe it's not so much suffering. Maybe it's wisdom more generally. Uh, maybe you're mindful that actually you're not being wise about how you, how you spend your, your free time. You're mindful that you watch screens so much. Maybe on your phone way more uh, than you feel you should be. So you pray, Lord, help me to make better use of the time. But at the same time, you're thinking, but I can't be bothered to do anything else. I, I love watching uh, a screen. I don't really care how I live my life. I just want to scroll because that is easy. And what we're doing is we're doubting God's goodness. We're doubting God's ways are the best ways. And that's the sort of double-mindedness uh, that James has in mind. Not that God is true, that God exists, but his ways are good. It's believing the right things about God, but investing all our hopes and our comforts in the here and now. And what James is saying is don't be double-minded. Don't have a foot in two camps. Be a consistent Christian. Be a bit like a stick of rock, you know, that has the same message through and through and through. Christian, uh, Rin, through every part of you. And the way to do this is to have a right view of God's goodness. As James says in verse 5, God is a generous God. He's a giving God who doesn't hold back. 
So get God right, James is saying. Trust in his goodness. Count trials joy and ask for wisdom. He's a generous God. And he continues on the similar theme in verses 9 to 11. Again, it's getting God right in different circumstances now, whether we've been dealt an easy hand or a hard hand. You see, both the rich and the poor can be double-minded about God. We can both be invested too much in this life. For the poor, the potential error is actually not boasting at all. But verse 9 in the gospel, the poor are exalted by God. And again, is that not a remarkable verse? Uh, for those of us whose lives are incredibly hard because we actually really feel we have nothing in this world. We don't even have respect. God exalts in Christ. He exalts the poor. And James is saying, boast in that. You're poor. Boast in your exaltation. Boast that the creator of the universe thinks you're precious. But on the other hand, the potential error of the rich person is that they boast in the wrong things. The poor person might not boast at all. The rich person boasts in the wrong thing, in their riches. To which James says, yes, do boast, but boast in your finitude. You've got riches that not even death can take away. Don't think about your clothes and your house and your car. Consider the riches that can never be taken away from you. Boast that you've got something better than your riches. You're going to die one day, and that is good, because you'll enter a new creation where the things there will last forever. So whether it's longing for riches or boasting in riches, James says, no, 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 no. You've got something far better. Don't think about this life. Don't be double-minded. Don't be worldly. Think about the God who you have. You've got him. Now boast in him and boast in the gospel. What, what might that look like? Or the lowly, the have-nots, those desperately counting the pennies each month, will enjoy daily the fact that you really are precious in God's sight. You're precious to your Father, you're precious to your Father in heaven. And one day he will exalt you like a king. And to the rich, to the haves, he's, remember daily your wealth. What is it like? It's, it's just like a snowman that's melting where the sun is shining. That's what's going to happen to it. Or a sandcastle when the tide is coming. We heard about tides coming in earlier. You wouldn't boast in a sandcastle, would you, that's about to be washed away. Don't boast in the things that can disappear. Boast in the gospel. Boast that you've got treasures uh, that this world, uh, that this life, can, in this life can never be taken away. So James, he's really wanting us to not be uh, double-minded so that we're steady and secure in trials. He wants to stop from having one foot in the world. And he wants to remember God's goodness. He wants to be consistent Christians, not those being tossed about but in the waves of life and the challenges that are thrown at us every day, every week, every month and every year. Now, secondly, and more briefly, James wants us to trust in God's goodness in temptations. We've had trust, trust God's goodness in trials. Now trust God's goodness in temptations. And that's really where we get taken, verse 12 to 18. And we see this link. It's the same sort of theme because verse 12 is very similar to verse uh, 2 to 3. And we get the themes of steadfastness in the face of trials. But the nature of the trials are slightly different now. We're looking at temptations. And of course, temptations very often happen, don't they, in the face of trials, don't they? So children, you don't normally get grumpy, do you, when you're slurping an ice cream? That's a time when you're, you're happiest, aren't you? You'll be nice to any, everybody. 
We're not generally moody and bitter and unpleasant, aren't we, where the, where the sun is shining in our lives. We're not tempted to slander others when everyone is speaking well of us, when we're being fed good words. We, we don't feel we have to knock anyone else off their perch. But again, children, we get grumpy and bitter, don't we, when we don't get our way, when we can't watch the TV, when we've got to eat food we don't like when it's bedtime. Then we're really tempted, aren't we, to let rip, to let out the anger. And maybe uh, adults, we're much more tempted to steal. Maybe you're tempted to maybe have an expenses claim. We're tempted to fiddle expenses, aren't we, when, when, when money is tight, to slightly adjust the tax return when we're really feeling the pinch. Maybe tempted to look at pornography when we're lonely, maybe when we're under pressure. Again, children tempted to say something nasty when your brother and sister has said something uh, nasty back to us. So what do we do uh, in the face uh, of these uh, temptations? Well, James, again, he gets us to look upwards. He gets to look at the character of God. Starts off verse 12. He gets to look at the crown of life. A crown is the great, it's a picture of the greatest treasure you could possibly have, isn't it? Fit for kings and queens, yet ours in Christ. If we stand the test, if we keep trusting the Lord, eternal glory with him, never to perish, spoil or fade. Of course, we don't have to be steadfast under trial, do we? We've got other options. Facing a trial, what can you do? Facing temptations, well, there's one option given to us, verse 13, 14, just blame God. Verse 13, we say, God is tempting me. God is tempting me, it's his fault, he made me do it. That's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's not my fault. It's his fault. So we can both believe in God and trust him as Christians and yet blame him for the temptations we face. We, we're completely inconsistent, aren't we? We're double-minded. We've got two minds about the character of God. Really deep down, we know what he's like. But functionally speaking, we blame him for our challenges. We're double-minded about him. And what happens is we get God's character completely wrong. So look at verse 13. James says, God can't tempt you with evil, nor can he be tempted by it. It's completely against his nature. God has got nothing to do uh, with evil. So the question then is, well, where does this temptation come from? Well, it comes from within. It comes from within you. It comes from your own desire, verse 14. And your desires then tempt you to act on sin. It's your desire that is the mother of sin. Don't blame God. Look at yourself. That's where sins come from. Again, we can see how this works in ordinary life, can't we? Why did I get angry? Why did I get angry? Well, it's God's fault. He's put me under too much pressure. I've been blamed for things that aren't my fault. He's tempting me. Well, no, it's my fault, isn't it? My desire for autonomy that I can't have. My desire for vindication in this life that I can't have has given birth to my anger. Again, why did I watch pornography? Well, it's God's fault. He's made me lonely. My circumstances are really hard. He's made me stressed. That's what I, I just needed an escape. Well, no, it's not God's fault, is it? It's my fault. I've not trusted the truth that God is generous, that his ways are good. I, I've separated sex from love. That's what's going on when I'm watching pornography. I've not trusted that his ways are good. Again, why was I stingy? Why was I really ungenerous with my words? Why was I really ungenerous with my hospitality? 
What was going there? Well, it's God's fault. He's not giving me enough. I just don't have enough to give out. Well, no, that's not James saying. It's my fault. I've not trusted that he is generous and he's good and he's the giver of all good things and he will look after me and he will vindicate me. I've had completely the wrong view of God. It's our sinful desire that leads us to sinful acts. Now, just a brief aside, um, very often this passage is sometimes used uh, to separate our desires from our sin. And the argument goes something like this. Our desire gives birth to sin. And therefore, they're different things. So desire is one thing and sin is another thing. Um, So therefore, actually, desires in and of themselves are neutral. It just matters what I do. And it's just what I do that I need to repent, repent of, not what I desire. But I don't think that can be right, can it? Um, firstly, um, again, the Bible teaches about the nature of desire in a number of passages. Old Testament, you say um, the Tenth Commandment says coveting, that's a desire, uh, can be a sin. Or Jesus teaching that lusting, a desire, uh, is sinful. Or Paul telling us to put to death our desires that are sinful. So partly for the rest of the scriptures, uh, we know that desires in and of themselves can be uh, sinful and need to be repented of but also here it slightly misses the point because what uh, because what James is saying here is the real danger is that we justify our sin by saying it's God's fault he's tempted me it's not my fault but actually what James is saying no, no, no the sin doesn't originate from God it comes from within it comes from within you you've given birth to sin it's our fault so what's James's antidote here? Again, he's not just here to give us a total kicking. He wants to reveal our sin to us that we might repent and that we might have life. Well, what James says is that trust God's goodness. Look at his goodness again. Look at his beauty. And that's really what he does in the last two verses. So verse 17, God is the origin of every good thing. A temptation couldn't possibly come from him. Verse 17 again, he's the father of lights. It's a phrase that's basically saying he's the creation of the earth and the goodness that is in the world. Verse 17, his goodness never changes. He didn't just, wasn't good at creation and now he says sometimes good, sometimes not. No, he's always good, all the time. And verse 18, his plan for us is life. We're the start of God remaking our beautiful world and he has given us life. And that's what James wants us to see. He's saying in the face of trials, look at God's goodness. He's trustworthy. He's saying get God right. Look again at God's character. He's generous. He's only good all the time. And he's for you. He's for his people. Don't forget it. Don't be deceived. And that's really uh, the theme throughout this passage. James is saying again, again, again. Get God's character right. Get God's character right in trials. Get God's character right in temptations. And it's getting his character right and believing his character, beholding his character, that's the thing going to help you live as a consistent Christian. Don't be deceived. Uh, Really, uh, James wants us to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect and sinless uh, human being. And one of the reasons for his perfection and his completeness was that Jesus himself, uh, in his humanity, got God right. He never doubted the goodness of his Father 
even in trials. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was made perfect uh, through his suffering. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured trials. He went through the hardest things because he knew that ultimately uh, there was joy before them. So he could be steadfast in the face of trials. And therefore, so by God's grace, uh, so can we. So God wants us to be perfect, whole Christians. And as we get into the book of James, we start this series, we're going to see our shortcomings. But James holds them together with a beautiful picture of God. He wants us to look at God and his character and his goodness, his generosity, what he gives his people. And James is is asking us, wide out your good God and Father. He is good and generous and commit fully to him. And as we read a passage like this, we think, well, yes, but I'm so, I've fallen so far short. As we read this, uh, the whole letter of James, uh, it really, the crescendo is in verse four, we st- it's chapter four. We start in chapter four uh, about uh, seeing our adultery, how we haven't loved as we ought. And as James continues uh, in chapter four, he goes on. Look at chapter four, uh, verse eight, which we sort of need to return here occasionally to in James. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to God to you. He is gracious to the humble. So let's confess us into God now. Uh, let us be honest to him that we have not been whole Christians and let us ask him to give us a fresh view of who he is and ask that we might be consistent Christians. Uh, let me pray. Father in heaven, it is a wonderful truth that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And Father, as we read a passage like this, we are mindful how we so often attribute wrong things to you. Uh, We so often uh, think you're a stingy God. We forget your generosity. We don't often believe you're totally for us. And we think you're against us. Have mercy on us, we pray. And we pray this week you give us a fresh uh, vision of the crown of life a fresh vision of eternity, a fresh vision that even in the hardest times, you are working them for good. Please help us to trust you and trust your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.